Today is 1 Peter 3, verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, how kind you are to us, how patient you are with your people. Thank you for the great love that you have shown us by dying for us, by taking your own life back from the grave, and by ruling your world with wisdom and faithfulness and righteousness. We are gathering today to praise you. Empty us of ourselves. Help us to weep with those who weep today and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And now give us insight and understanding of your word. May it nourish us, your people. May it light our way in the darkness and may Crossway Fellowship rise up to do mighty things through the power of the gospel for your glory. Amen. Well, you may have noticed in our study of 1 Peter that good conduct is crucial to the Apostle Peter. Doing good conduct. He has mentioned these numerous times so far in his letter. As God's chosen people dispersed in the world and waiting for Jesus' return, Peter wants to make sure that we understand that we establish that identity as God's people in the world, not by insisting on our rights, not by trying to take advantage of our privileges, but by doing good. Now remember that Peter began this section of his letter in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The day of visitation is that day that we are waiting for when Jesus returns to judge the world. So, First, then, Peter calls us to good, to doing good, by submitting for the Lord's sake to every institution, to civil authorities, as citizens. In this life, we are not called to be revolutionaries for Jesus and overthrow governments. Our calling is to submit to the civil authorities, and they have purpose in the world in restraining evil and rewarding good. Now we know that not all civil authorities do that, 
But by and large, that's why it exists, and that's what we're called to be. He says to masters, uh, or calls us to submit to masters if we are slaves. As Christian slaves, our freedom in Christ would not be to overthrow our masters because we belong to Christ. He then calls wives to submit to husbands. And in each of these, we saw that they are binding roles in society that can be very difficult to be a Christian, especially if those in authority, if those in the positions of influence and power are hostile to the Christian faith. So both slaves and wives then are models for the church because it is the people of God as a whole that are placed in a precarious place in this world. In each case, Peter says, subject yourself, show honor, show respect, endure unjust treatment, and let your submission make the gospel beautiful. Let it make the gospel attractive. Now Peter establishes good conduct as the the banner that flies over all of God's people, all of his exiles, and he tells us to persist in doing good. This is a priority for us, to do good. Verse 8, finally all of you. And by finally, he doesn't mean that it's the last thing he wants to say. He's going to go on for another uh, couple chapters and a half here. He means something like comprehensively. To summarize for all of you, not just in your role as citizens, not as slaves, not as wives, but all Christians everywhere at all times, the church. And he gives us three priorities then in persisting in doing good. How to persist in doing good. First of all, verse 8, cultivate good. Cultivate good. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Harmony is really what this word means. Let your desires and your pursuits cooperate with and complement others' desires and pursuits. To have unity of mind is the opposite of being territorial. To have unity of mind means to have a common kingdom vision, to give ourselves to the same calling. He doesn't mean agree with everybody on every little thing, but when you disagree to harmonize. Harmony is not singing the same notes. That's singing in unison. Having unity of mind means, or as this word is, harmonizing. You sing different notes, but they ought to be in tune with one another. So have unity of mind. Have sympathy. In other words, feel what other people feel. See situations, see circumstances, see relationships from other people's perspectives. As the church, this is, this is I mean, as human beings, this is difficult to do. In the church, it is crucial that we be able to get into other people's perspectives and understand why people do. It's the opposite of judging. 
It's the opposite of having a critical spirit. Sympathy. Feel what others feel. Get into other people's perspectives. Have brotherly love. This is a family love. This is the kind of love that accompanies knowing each other. This is not the love that you would have for a stranger. This is not the kind of love you would have for an enemy. Peter would use the word agape for that. This is the word phileo, Philadelphia, brotherly love. This is the kind of love you have for family. This is the kind of love you have for a friend, a comrade, someone that you're slogging it, you're slogging out life alongside. That's a brotherly love. Have a tender heart. This is compassion. Be moved for other people easily. Especially those who are suffering or vulnerable. Have a tender heart toward them. And lastly, have a humble mind. This means considering others before yourself. This is the opposite of pride. This is the opposite of selfish ambition. To have a humble mind in the church is to to function in this family without an agenda for self-promotion, self-protection. Now, you can uh, dig down on each of these terms further. You can... Uh, talk about each of these attitudes separately, like you might admire individual colors or techniques in a painting. You could pursue each of these in Scripture. You could line out uh, a number of cross-references where throughout the Bible, especially the New Testament, these terms are used in other places because they're repeated often. But Peter's goal is to paint a vibrant portrait of a harmonious family in which good conduct is cultivated. That's what he's getting at here. It's in a church, a local church, where these attitudes dictate, they control, they condition how we think about each other, how we respond to one another, that cultivates good if we're going to practice honorable conduct in the world by doing good that glorifies God, it must be centered in the community of faith. It begins there. It is in the church where honorable conduct is first nurtured and practiced. These attitudes, again, are for everybody. Peter's now saying it's not just slaves, it's just not Wives in, in relationship to husbands. It's not just enduring unjust suffering in those kinds of roles or situations. This is for everybody in the church. This is what it means to belong to the family of God. To have this unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. These are mutual attitudes toward one another, regardless of what roles you might find yourselves in. So first of all, if we're going to persist in doing good, especially when it's difficult, it begins here. It begins within the walls 
if you will, of Crossway Fellowship. It begins with us having these attitudes toward each other and challenging ourselves when we find that we don't because none of us are perfect and having these mindsets all the time. But we must cultivate good, and we cultivate good in the community of faith when we treat one another this way, when we think of each other this way. Secondly, we are to repay evil with good. So we cultivate good, and we repay evil with good. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, verse 9. And when Peter speaks of evil here, and this is true throughout his letter, evil is the opposite of good, but it is not just sin in general. We use evil in that way. Evil is wicked, evil is sinfulness, evil is rebellion, wrongdoing. But really, to do evil is to harm others. It's to do harm. Sometimes the word evil can be used to describe calamity. Evil has befallen them. That's calamity. To do evil is to bring calamity against somebody else. It's to do them wrong. It's to do them harm. So lying to someone, stealing from somebody, slandering Manipulating, using other people, assaulting physically would certainly be doing someone harm, damaging someone's reputation or their standing, withholding credit or withholding good. Those would all be ways of doing evil bringing harm against somebody. And Peter's chosen example here is reviling So do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This means insulting. Why does Peter pick this word? Probably because it is the most common kind of evil that Christians were facing. There would be extreme cases and there would be waves of persecution in the early centuries of the church where uh, persecution and evil against the, the people of God would certainly include physical uh, harm. It would include confiscation of property. It might even include execution, torture. But the most common was this reviling, this insulting. I think Peter also identifies reviling because it is the most difficult to resist repaying back in kind. When insulted, it's easier to fire an insult back, isn't it? Or a sarcastic comment, and I would include obscene gestures. Reviling may be aimed directly at you. You may be reviled to your face. You may be reviled behind your back. It may be something that's done in secret. It may be done uh, covertly. Uh, flattering you to your face, but reviling you when you're not present. Do not repay reviling for reviling. Peter says, don't repay. Don't give tit for tat. 
On the contrary, bless. Oh, now this is where it gets tough. This is why we need persistence in doing good. Because when Peter says, on the contrary, bless, he is saying more than just don't fire back with an insult when you're insulted. He's saying when you're insulted, you actually do something kind in return. You offer a kind word. Blessing is more than holding your tongue. Blessing is proactive kindness. Peter is calling us to return evil with good, to repay insult with blessing. And it may be that Peter still has the community, the Christian community in mind. Despite our new birth, despite our common faith, we know that we can be wronged by one another and we can ourselves wrong other people, fellow Christians, even within the church. We can still sin against each other. We can treat one another poorly. Sometimes we do this knowingly, and sometimes we may do it unintentionally. But we can be wronged and we can feel wronged by one another. If so, Peter is saying that harmony, humility, brotherly love, that these are maintained by bearing with each other, even if a fellow believer within the church wrongs us in some way. And in that case, this would kind of be the crowning um, goal or example of what it means to have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and being humble in mind. But I really think that Peter has his eye on the outside at this point. I think that from verse 8 to verse 9, Peter is moving from inside the family of Christ to the outside of the family of Christ, the unbelieving world. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, which I read a couple minutes ago, it is the Gentiles or the unbelievers who speak against you as evildoers. That's a form of reviling. It is the uh, unjust suffering that we endure for doing good in chapter 2, verse 20. That unjust treatment is from those outside the faith. So Peter here is saying that when we uh, cultivate good in the body, in the community of faith, what that will look like outside of our family is a, a repayment of evil done to us with good. And we must cultivate good in among ourselves to be able to create a fabric that will withstand being done evil against outside, from the outside, do you see? This may well be one of the most difficult commands in all of Scripture. Because we like to get even. We like to get even. We like it on large-scale circumstances, and we like it in the small, everyday things of life. We like to get even. Think about how many storylines and movie plots are driven by revenge. Many. It's popular. And you know why it's popular? It's popular because it's satisfying to the imagination. 
to identify with a character who gets even. And the reason, if you're thinking, well, I I can't think of that many with revenge, the reason may be is because that uh, vengeance, that revengeful spirit is often sold to us as justice. That it's just, we don't think of it as revenge because this person has a right to get back at that person or entity, corporation, organization. They have the right to do that. It's just, they've been treated unjustly, therefore it's only right for them to get back to even the score. They have suffered some great wrong. It's sold to us as justice. And I think that we as God's people really struggle to live out what Peter's commanding here because we tend to take our cues from the world. We watch enough stuff, listen to enough stuff, inundate ourselves, immerse ourselves with enough of the stuff of the world, we end up thinking like it. But God, through the Apostle Peter, calls us to something greater, something higher, something superior. And that is to not repay evil with evil, but to repay evil with good. And isn't it Jesus himself who set forth what it meant to live in the kingdom, what kingdom living was about? Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. There you go. There's evil for evil. There's reviling for reviling. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. That's kingdom living. Jesus continues in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's the policy. There's the evil for evil, the eye for an eye. Your enemy does you evil. You can return evil to them. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How does our Father in heaven display this kind of spirit to human beings, to all of the human race? For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus is pointing out that God looks at humanity and sees those who are righteous and those who are evil. He doesn't only make it rain on the righteous and feed their crops and make them produce and wealthy. He sends rain on the whole world. It's mercy, that's grace. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, and by the way, he's pointing to tax collectors because typically they were driven by greed and malice and self-ambition. 
even to the undoing and cost of other people. But even they will say, if someone treats me well, I'll treat them well. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect or whole, complete, as your heavenly Father is perfect. To belong to God, to be in the kingdom, is a radically different way of responding to being afflicted by evil, being harmed by others. And Peter himself has already pointed to Jesus as the perfect sufferer, as the model, as the example. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Peter is just coming back to that. He's reinforcing our calling here. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing, says in verse 9. For to this you were called, to this, what? To suffering, evil, to suffering, reviling, but repaying it with blessing. To belong to God is to be called to this path. Obtaining a blessing is the goal. The blessing is God's favor, and it ultimately points to, uh, Peter's point to, the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, back in chapter 1, verse 7. This end goal, the ending of all things. You may, know, you may know blessing, you may know favor in this life, and this next passage that we're going to look at next time, beginning in verse 13, actually says that. It says, if you do good, who's going to want to harm you? Most people, even the world who doesn't know God, doesn't respond to people doing them good with harm, but it will happen at times. But... Peter is saying that ultimately the blessing that you will obtain is at the end. So in other words, Peter says, God has called you for the purpose of suffering evil against you so that you can repay that evil with good and obtain his blessing. That you can achieve your destiny, that which you have already been called and chosen for as God's people. That's obtaining his blessing, suffering evil, and repaying it with good is the ordained path to glory. Wasn't that Jesus' path? Peter's saying, you're just following Jesus right down the path of life. Just take the same steps he took. Take the same trail that he blazed already. We are to cultivate good, and we are to repay evil with good. That's hard. That's really hard. Lastly, Peter says, please God by pursuing good. Please God by pursuing good. Beginning in verse 10. Now this is, by the way, this is Psalm 34 that Peter quotes here, verses 12 
through 16 of Psalm 34. And like he does with other Old Testament texts, he takes it and he applies it to us as God's people in the now. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, blessing, fullness. And for David, like it is in much of the Psalms, this uh, life and good days would have been, in David's mind and his experience, something immediately tangible. Like the Proverbs. If you want to know God's blessing, work with integrity. Work with industry. Don't be lazy. Do what's right and honest. Don't lie and deceive or cheat people. And you'll know blessing. And when David is saying this from Psalm 34, he is talking about experiencing a wholeness to life, peace and and goodness in life. But like so many other texts, in the Old Testament, and Psalms in particular, it is a type. It is painting a picture of blessing. And we belong to that picture. We belong to this event, if you will. We are participating in it. So whoever desires to love life and see good days, to experience blessing, to experience fullness which may not be every day in every experience. It may or may not be known in this life. But it is ultimately true. It will ultimately be fulfilled. And then he gives three instructions that involve doing good to others rather than harming them. First, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So not... Lying to people, not cheating people, not deceiving people, dealing with them honestly, not flattering people, not saying good things to them to their face and saying bad things about them behind their backs. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. It's everything from not slandering to not bearing false witness against somebody. Secondly, let him turn away from evil and do good. This is the hinge, right? Let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him keep his tongue, uh, his lips from speaking deceit. And then let him turn away from evil. These are all avoiding. These are all resisting, staying away from, not going down that path. Instead, do good Do not give way to the temptation to do others harm, especially when they have done harm to you. Do good. And there's nothing in between. There's nothing between evil and good. If you turn away from evil, good is the path. If you want to pursue good, you must turn away from evil. Let him seek peace. And pursue it. Peter's talking here about peace with others that can only be sought and pursued when we turn from evil. When we refuse to harm others, even if they have done harm to us. This peace is the the absence of the conflict that comes when we perpetuate evil by returning evil for evil. When reviled, we revile back. 
Let him seek peace and pursue it. Why? The reason for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So God is spirit. He doesn't have physical eyes and ears. This is imagery. And Peter is saying that the Lord's attention is on the righteous. His favor is toward them. His affection is on them. For those of you who are parents, and you, if you have ever been to one of your child's performances, whether that's a play or singing in a choir or whatever it might be, and you are in the audience and suddenly hundreds of cameras and phones, right? They come out, flashes. Why do we see this? Why does this happen? Why am I filming my daughter singing in a Christmas musical for her school? I'm filming that not because of everybody else on that stage. Oh, it might be fun to go back and watch it with her and point and say, look, there's your friend. She's singing and look what he's doing and why is she spinning around over here on the side and, and you're, you're, why are you looking off into the ceiling? You know, it might be fun to go back and do that, but I'm doing that because my child is in there. It means something to me to see and to remember her participation, what she's doing. If she's not up there, the other grades before her are going, I don't film that. This is the imagery. God is our Father. We are His people. We are the righteous. His eyes are on us. He is looking toward us. He is taking delight and pleasure in us, His people. And His ears are open to their prayer. There is a line of appeal for us. When we do good and we experience evil and we experience reviling, we have a line of appeal to God. Do you hear me? See what I'm experiencing. I'm trying to return evil with good. Deliver me. We have a line to God. His ears are open to our cries. But, here's the contrast. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we've got God's eyes on us. And we have God's ears open to us. And Peter says that his face, though, is against. And the idea here is that face of judgment. That face of disapproval. That while on the righteous, God's eyes are on them and his ears are open to, the, to their prayer, that the evil, God turns his face against and sets his face. He squares up with them. It's a way of saying that God draws a line in the sand toward those who do harm to others, including his own people. And that his face is set against them. 
It's a picture of being before the face of a judge who isn't going to, and I believe this is part of the imagery, who isn't going to look aside and ignore what's over here. Because you see, that's what the evil are counting on. Those who do evil are counting on and see God as someone who doesn't look and doesn't see. His face is not toward them. His face is looking over here. Again, I'll have to appeal to parenting. When I'm looking over here and my attention is over here, it's a perfect opportunity to do something that shouldn't be done. And that's how the evil operate. But Peter says that the face of God, the face of the Lord is against those. That means God is squared up and he sees in judgment. Now, Psalm 34. Let's talk about Psalm 34 for a minute. Because there's more to this than just Peter pulling a text out of Psalm 34, a quote. Psalm 34 lies behind much of what Peter writes in his letter. Let me give you some examples. Both of them begin with blessing the Lord. David writes in Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. Hmm. Peter begins his letter, 1 Peter, in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Both David in Psalm 34 and Peter in 1 Peter talk about shame coming to ruin. And David writes in Psalm 34, verse 5, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. And in 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Peter writes, Whoever believes in him shall never be put to shame. And in 1 Peter 2, 6, Peter's actually quoting Isaiah, but he's drawing a parallel between what Isaiah writes and what David has written in Psalm 34. He is drawing lines of, of biblical truth throughout the scriptures. What about fear, fearing God, fearing the Lord? In Psalm 34, verse 9, fear the Lord, you his saints, or holy ones. In verse 11 of Psalm 34, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 17, conduct yourselves with fear. Chapter 2, verse 17, fear God. So both David in Psalm 34 and Peter are concerned with this priority of fearing God. Psalm 34, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 Peter, If you indeed have tasted that the Lord is good. Chapter 30, uh, Psalm 34, verse 22, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. 1 Peter 1, 18 Peter says that we know that we were ransomed or redeemed. It's the same word. Do you see? Peter is drawing from Psalm 34 throughout the entire letter. But what is especially striking about Psalm 34 is that David is describing his experience in this psalm while he is in exile. You see, his life has been put in danger in Israel by King Saul. And for those of you who 
who've ever been to Sunday school and you know all the stories about David and Saul and Saul trying to kill David because God has anointed David and, and Saul knows that David has God's blessing and is going to be uh, uh, raised up to be king. Saul has already been rejected because he has not lived by faith. He has not obeyed God. And so Saul is jealous of David, and Saul is hunting David. And at one point, it becomes so bad that David flees to the land of the Philistines. Now, were the Philistines and the Israelites friends? No, they were bitter enemies. They were bitter rivals. And so David flees into the land of the enemy to escape Saul in Israel. And it's during this time that he is captured by the Philistines. He's brought in before their king, Abimelech. And Abimelech, and, and, and the potential is there for Abimelech to just kill David. And David feigns madness. He feigns like he's a complete uh, crazy person, drools on himself, messes up his hair. And, 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 and they say, get this guy out of here. And he escapes. And then he dwells in the land of the Philistines until it's safe for him to go back into the land of Israel. So David is in exile. That's what Psalm 34 is about. So everything that David is writing in Psalm 34 is from the vantage point of being separated from the people of God and the place of God and being cast into the midst of enemies who are not bent on doing David good but evil if they can. And Peter is drawing a parallel then. God's people who persevere in turning from evil and doing good will know God's blessing in exile. That even though they are cast out from the people of God and the place of God, they are separated for us, it is waiting for heaven. It is waiting for eternity. It is waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come. And meanwhile, we are dispersed among God's enemies, with those who reject God. And those who persevere in turning from evil and doing good will know God's blessing in exile while waiting for God to rescue them, knowing that he will, because his eyes see their plight, because his ears hear their cries. So this persisting in doing good, listen, this is essential for the gospel. This is essential to living out the gospel in the world. This is essential for mission. Not just doing good, but repaying evil with good. Now, there's something to be said for being proactively good. We'll talk more about that in the next text. But Peter's concern primarily is when you're put in the difficult place of being harmed by uh, being the victim of evil, being reviled against, that God has called us as his people to respond by doing good, to persist in doing good. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be the people of God in exile.